Welcome to the Modern Mexico Podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Parrish. On today's episode of the podcast, we're talking about the Mexican origins of vanilla. The state of Veracruz in eastern Mexico is known for being a heavyweight in Mexico's oil industry and a hotspot for organized crime activity. But the verdant hills that line the winding roads outside of the town of Papantla are also home to the bulk of Mexico's vanilla farmers. In fact, the indigenous Totonaco residents who live in Veracruz have been cultivating vanilla for hundreds of years. The Mexican origins of vanilla are not widely understood, and today, around the world, vanilla is not really seen as a Mexican product. But it was the Totonaco residents of Veracruz who first harvested and exported the plant. Totonaco farmers showed the plant to Spanish soldiers and traders who brought the narrow, bean-like pods back to Europe. Today, the English word vanilla is based on the Spanish word for sheath. The indigenous Totonaco word for the plant was never absorbed into the lexicon of globalized commodity markets. Today, several hundred farming families in Veracruz produce around four-fifths of Mexico's total vanilla output, but overall Mexico has been eclipsed and largely forgotten as a vanilla producer. Mexico's federal government estimates that the country currently exports just over $600,000 of vanilla every year. But some local producers calculate that real production and export totals could be several times higher than the official figures indicate. But by any estimate, Mexico has long been eclipsed by Madagascar a country that now exports over $600 million of vanilla every year. In other words, today, Madagascar, a country that is a recent entrant into the vanilla sector, tallies vanilla export revenues that are 1,000 times higher than Mexico's. Nevertheless, Totonaco farmers in Veracruz still carry on with their traditions and hand fertilize each delicate lily flower on the vanilla plants on their farms, producing pods to be picked and dried under the sun. A few weeks ago, I visited with a 67-year-old vanilla farmer named Jose, and we walked through the tangle of trees on his remote farm about an hour's drive into the hills outside of Pabantla. He showed me one of the 10,000 plants he cares for on his land. He said that his annual sales of vanilla earn him just under $30,000, a revenue level that catapults him into the top 10% of the wealthiest residents in Veracruz in terms of annual household income. He told me that he learned the intricacies of caring for the delicate plants from his parents and grandparents. And he said that he feels a strong connection to the hundreds of years of history during which his predecessors grew and consumed vanilla. 
Jose also told me that he would never stop growing vanilla. He said that he viewed growing vanilla as an integral part of his culture as a member of the Totonaco community in Veracruz. But he also gave me a piece of advice on how he protects his crop during harvest season. Always carry a shotgun, he said. Veracruz, after all, suffers from one of the highest rates of impunity of any state in Mexico. Overall in Mexico, nearly 19 out of every 20 murders goes unprosecuted and unsolved. As a rule, the justice system in Veracruz simply can't be relied on to investigate, punish, or deter criminals. Vanilla crops in remote areas are a key source of income for local farmers, but vanilla is also a source of quick cash for thieves who steal backpacks full of beans for resale to local aggregators and exporters. I went to Veracruz wondering if the dynamics in the vanilla sector might be similar to something I talked about on a recent episode of the podcast, the incursion of organized crime into Mexico's multi-billion dollar a year avocado sector. But when I talked to local farmers and exporters in Veracruz, I found that the vanilla sector has its own unique set of problems. On today's episode of the podcast, we're talking to Steve Woodman, a Mexico-based organized crime researcher at Advanced Intelligence Solutions. So, welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks for having me. So, on today's episode, we're talking about vanilla. And I wanted to ask, have you ever seen vanilla marketed as a Mexican product in stores or restaurants in Mexico? No, actually. So I saw that there are a few US companies online that focus on the history of vanilla production. But overall, it seems that there would be quite a lot of room for growth uh, because this is a product that has been produced in that area for at least 800 years. So it has a very marketable cultural heritage story. But it's a lot lower profile than, for example, tequila or mezcal. Um, or, you know, even uh, habanero chilies or coffee. Um, And that's a shame because it seems like there's potential because there's this movement now towards buying products from small-scale producers who use traditional methods. And I think um, there could be an appeal to supporting local farmers or indigenous producers. And basically, high-quality vanilla is likely to be ethically sourced vanilla so um, and just to support my kind of claim about heritage products you can look at tequila and there are distilleries where I live in Jalisco that make dozens of tequila brands and each one of them has a different heritage story Uh, there's even a tequila brand that has a hacienda building which is like an expansive colonial estate And that was finished in 2003. So the fact is, many companies are prepared to even make up heritage claims. And in the case of vanilla, it has a very interesting history. And I think growth in that area could be could be a force for good, basically. 
Yeah, definitely. I think that when it comes to vanilla, it seems like there's a real lost opportunity when it comes to storytelling. I know that when I visited Veracruz, I had the chance to meet with vanilla growers from the Totonaco indigenous community and walk through their land and see how they grow their plants. And I heard about how they tend to the plants throughout the year, how they hand fertilize the delicate lily flowers in the spring and how they harvest and sun dry the skinny pods before Christmas. And a lot of them expressed a lot of pride in their family's history in producing and consuming vanilla. They saw it not just as a source of income, but really part of their cultural heritage. And you know, you mentioned tequila, and I also think mezcal is another real success story. We've seen mezcal have this amazing moment of global recognition as a excellent and uniquely Mexican product. And we also see coffee marketed, not just as a Mexican product, but a product that comes from a particular state like Veracruz or Chiapas. And of course, we've seen the story of Mexico's multi-billion dollar a year avocado export boom. So it really seemed to me to be a big missed opportunity that even in Mexico City, high-end ice cream and gelato stores aren't marketing and promoting Mexican vanilla. And I know that you cover a lot of security issues in your work, and I'm wondering... Has vanilla theft ever come up on your radar at all? Uh, in that area, we've mainly seen extortion rackets targeting indigenous communities working in the corn industry. And there have been forced disappearances and murders of people working in that, uh, in that area. Uh, overall, agricultural crime is an issue in Veracruz, so extortion of pineapple growers and cattle farmers has been an issue. And it's not surprising that vanilla theft occurs. Uh, I saw that in, in 2018, vanilla prices were nearly $600 per kilo, which is more than silver. And I, I know it's dropped since, but it's a very profitable crop. And robberies are extremely likely given the broader security context in Veracruz. Um, so basically in Veracruz, it matches a trend across Mexico where organized crime has diversified away from drug trafficking into new criminal areas, including extortion, kidnapping, migrant smuggling, fuel theft. And there's also been, in terms of opportunistic crimes, there are, um, there are new modus operandi that have emerged and basically, for, for organized crime groups, it, it makes business sense to broaden their portfolio. But also, over time, they've splintered, and now there are more gangs than ever before. And what happens is sometimes they lose contact with, for example, drug trafficking connections in the US, and they might diversify into fuel theft or kidnapping or whatever. This has an overall impact on the security climate. and. Um, yeah, the presence of organized crime is a factor even when it comes to opportunistic crimes. Um, so we've seen Veracruz is also a hotspot for um, other types of, of crimes that are often supported by larger organized crime groups like um, cargo theft, 
fuel theft, it's also a hotspot for that. And even though it has a relatively low homicide rate at the moment, uh, acts of extreme violence are, are an issue in the state. And that's often linked to criminal groups that are trying to lobby for influence, uh, pol- particularly like political influence. In the recent history of Veracruz, we've also seen how authorities like the state police have actually acted criminally themselves and have become the main perpetrators of some real atrocities like forced disappearances and torture, which I think we're going to talk about uh, in more detail later. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really important just to explain the overall context that within Mexico, Veracruz is definitely seen as a, as a hot spot of organized crime. And when it comes to vanilla in particular, I'm not sure that we or anybody really know the full extent of the connections between organized crime groups in Veracruz and the people who are stealing from local vanilla growers. Um, but just to give a little bit of an update on some of the current events in Veracruz, uh, a few weeks ago, I saw a pretty chilling news story about over a dozen frozen dismembered bodies being found in a building in Veracruz. And earlier this year, there was a news report about a message being posted in the town of Papantla warning that the town is now under the control of an organized crime group. Papantla has a boss, the message warned. So I'm wondering if we can continue to develop this topic a little bit. And I'm wondering if you can tell us what three words you would use to describe the current dynamics of organized crime in Veracruz. The three words I would choose uh, are corruption, impunity, and fluidity. And the first word, corruption, uh, Mexico is by far the most corrupt of the OECD member countries. And Veracruz is run by local political bosses. There's a history in that state of corrupt political leaders coming in and looting resources and preying on locals. And those trends particularly peaked during the term of Javier Duarte, their former state governor. Um, Actually, corruption is a flattering way to describe what went on because I normally associate corruption with a corrupt mayor giving a government contract to a friend. But this was more like if Al Capone had become governor of Illinois. Um, So the, the term state capture is often used to describe this kind of scenario. Um, Duarte got into power in 2010 and he immediately started stealing billions of dollars of federal money. Um, one notorious incident is his administration is accused of giving distilled water instead of chemotherapy to children with cancer. So he stole from a lot of social programs. And there were thousands of disappearances during his term, extrajudicial killings, two of the largest graves in the Americas with more than 300 skulls found in each of the graves were discovered in Veracruz and authorities, particularly the police, were the main perpetrators of forced disappearance. Um, his, his wife, Karime Maceas, uh, she's the former, former wife of Duarte, she was involved. She's living in London, she's now facing extradition, but apparently she was into ideas around 
new age manifestation because they found a notebook of hers in which she'd repeatedly written, I deserve abundance, I deserve abundance. And that was the kind of attitude they had towards being in power. Uh, and Duarte is now in prison on corruption charges, but his term, he, he was notorious and by extension, Veracruz state became synonymous with corruption. The second word I've chosen is impunity. Impunidad Cerro, which is a, a civil society organization, placed Veracruz in eighth place out of 32 federal entities for the rates of impunity or on homicides. Um, and maybe that doesn't sound too bad, but they also reported that means it, it has a 97.7% impunity rate for murder. Um, and as an aside, actually, Oaxaca, so it had a 100% impunity rate. And that means if you're going to set a realistic detective fiction in Oaxaca, the detective would never, ever solve the crime and the suspect would never be sentenced. And in Veracruz, it would be two out of every 100 cases. So when people talk about weak rule of law, it's not just a slight deficiency, it's a total lack. And on the ground, that translates into a lack of justice or closure for victims. So police will refuse uh, to let people file police reports, try to dissuade them. And uh, victims face long delays receiving justice if, if they ever do at all. The final word I've chosen would be fluidity. And in Veracruz, we can see very clear eras of organised crime and political collusion. So the predecessor to Javier Duarte was close to the Zetas. And Duarte opened the door for the Jalisco New Generation cartel, the CGNG. Since he left uh, office, well, he went on the run in 2016, we've seen a period of major political change in Veracruz. So the state government first went turned to the PAN party and now it's uh, Morena, the ruling party. And we've seen a broad range of gangs. I'm always hearing about new groups and it actually can be difficult to keep track because there's like a constant formation of splinter groups that battle for territory. These kind of announcements, like the announcement you mentioned in Papantla, um, these, these kinds of things are, are common enough in, in Veracruz. And recently there's been a wave of violence around, around the area we're talking about that's associated with vanilla uh, production. And this creates an environment of just constant fluidity, which is stressful for the population and also it's not a stable environment for business either. So corruption, impunity, and fluidity, those are definitely some interesting and helpful concepts to explain the big picture. And I'll be honest with you, when when I first heard about the topic of vanilla theft in, in Veracruz, my, my first assumption was that it would be a organized crime racket, similar to what's happening in the avocado sector or the lime sector. But in speaking to growers, I heard again and again that they suspected that the thieves were just local residents looking to pad their pockets with a bit of illegal income. I did not hear stories about vanilla growers being extorted or threatened by organized crime groups. And 
I also didn't find any news reports or hear any rumors from local people about heavily armed criminals and pickup trucks intercepting and stealing shipments from farmers or attacking the businesses that export vanilla. And I think we have to look at this, maybe the size of the revenue stream from the vanilla sector. And at the local level, it's important for particular families. You know, there are farmers there who might earn tens of thousands of dollars every year from vanilla. And that's a lot of money for a small town resident, but there are different organized crime groups in Veracruz who are earning millions and perhaps even hundreds of millions of dollars from drug trafficking, corruption, and fuel theft. So it seems like it is likely that vanilla is just not a top priority for some of the most powerful criminal, criminal groups in the state. But something that really stood out to me when I was researching this topic is that there are almost no news stories that document and explain what groups are behind the thefts. And on the one hand, it seems like there aren't a lot of investigations and arrests. And overall, the topic of vanilla theft in Veracruz is still something of a mystery. And... One of the growers who I talked to in Veracruz summed it up by theorizing that the heart of the issue is that it's very likely that local politicians are colluding with and protecting the thieves who steal vanilla. According to one academic, around 80% of all vanilla growers in Veracruz have experienced a robbery. And I talked to one grower there who showed me the pistol that he carries with him during harvest season in order to scare away potential thieves. And pretty much every single grower I talked to told me about the need to have family members or employees guarding the crops at night during harvest season. And you talked about impunity. And I think in the in the vanilla sector, the fear of robbery is really a, a constant concern during harvest season. But even though that's the case, we just don't see a lot of news stories about particular incidents of vanilla robberies in Veracruz. It just seems like the topic isn't being covered much by local media. And I wanted to ask you, how much of the media silence on vanilla theft is due to the intimidation factor and how much is due to either the incompetence or the involvement of the police and prosecutors? Well, that's a good question. And I imagine it will be a mixture of the two. So authorities are not interested in, in investigating and victims are often concerned about reporting crimes as well because they're they don't trust the police and they have concerns for for their safety um, more broadly um, one aspect of impunity in Mexico is this um, idea of inequality of access to security and justice so from a from a business perspective the size and political connectedness of a business sector will have an impact on how much support they'll get. Um, I've looked into the 
the tequila industry, which is a very different situation, they have problems with pirated tequila. Um, cargo theft is an issue for them. But tequila magnets are among the Mexican super rich, so they can knock on the door of the state government with any concerns that they have. And the tequila industry is not a key driver of violence uh, in the country. In Jalisco, where I live, it's not not a key driver of violence. You don't see lots of targeted killings of tequila workers or rampant extortion. So it shows that certain sectors can get the necessary support, but they need a lot of political weight. And this this idea of inequality of access to justice, just to go off on a bit of a, a bit of a tangent, it, it's even more obvious when it comes to individuals. So where I live in Elisco is a hot spot for disappearances, and probably the main driver to force authorities to take action um, on cases of disappearances is social media. So people from a certain class background or if they were kidnapped in a group, they're more likely to receive attention. Um, first, Normally first on social media, then it would be more widely reported in national or international outlets. But it's extremely difficult in the vast majority of cases, uh, especially people from low-income backgrounds, to receive any support at all from law enforcement. And to bring it back to Veracruz, uh, it's not just impunity, um, on the part of authorities, but there's this overall climate of impunity um, as well. And one of the main reasons for this is self-censorship among journalists in the state. And for context, uh, the reason for this is Mexico is the most dangerous country for media workers in the world. Last year, it was above Ukraine, Haiti and Syria for murders of, of journalists. And Veracruz is the single most dangerous place for the press in the deadliest country for journalists in the world. There have been 31 journalists killed since the year 2000, um, according to Article 19, which is a press freedom organisation. And that is nearly 20% of the total across the country. So it's uh, it's particularly difficult to report on certain issues. I've spoken to lots of journalists that work in Veracruz and they all say they are most afraid of reporting on political corruption um, more than reporting on drug traffickers, though um, there is an issue with that line has become increasingly blurry over over time. It's become very blurry now. Um, but to bring it back to Vanilla... Um, we're talking about a state with a climate of, Im- of impunity. And so I think small farmers would really need to organise and lobby to have any chance of having their concerns heard. And even then, I mean, you know, it's, it's a difficult situation that, that they, will, they will face in terms of getting access to support from law enforcement. Yeah, definitely. Um, something I did hear from some vanilla growers is they're a little bit wary about telling their own story or promoting themselves or promoting the history of their businesses on social media, just because they don't want people to know that they have tens of thousands of dollars of vanilla either in their houses or on their farms, uh, during the harvest season, it's better for them just to stay under the 
under the radar. And you said that you think it's a mix of both both factors. On the one hand, police and prosecutors in Veracruz aren't really doing their job when it comes to investigating vanilla theft. And on the other hand, local reporters aren't uh, investigating the issue and writing about it. But Sometimes it's hard for journalists to do their job when there's no baseline of court cases where there's easily verifiable information that's part of the public record where journalists can very easily from behind the desk uh, report on easily verifiable facts about current cases that are being prosecuted and criminals that are being sent to prison. And... You mentioned the fact that Veracruz is the most dangerous state in Mexico for journalists and that Mexico is the most dangerous country in the world for journalists. And that is something that really stands out to me, just thinking about that. 31 journalists have been killed in Veracruz since 2000. That's a lot. And I think that for reporters on the ground, it's pretty, pretty scary. And maybe they would prefer not to draw attention to themselves by going out and doing original reporting and talking to crime victims and creating stories that become part of the public record. So on the one hand, we can blame police and prosecutors, but part of the issue also is media silence and In Veracruz, I think generally we don't have any accountability for the crimes that are committed, but we also really don't have any visibility at the local level of what's going on because there is no effective local reporting on the incidents that happen every single week in the state. And I think that there's something similar happening in the logistics sector when it comes to cargo truck hijacking. Uh, We see news articles in Veracruz that publish official data for Mexico's federal government explaining how the trend is evolving, um, how the hijackings are happening more frequently than in the past. Uh, But we don't see local journalists in Veracruz publishing articles that document specific hijackings that take place every month. So there was one recent case I saw of a robbery in Veracruz that actually became a news story only because the truck driver had a GoPro camera that was running and that filmed the robbery. And his video was first published on social media and became a trending topic. And then because of that, it became a news story that some journalists wrote about. But I think overall, when it comes to the vanilla sector, we just don't have a lot of certainty about what's happening at the local level. And there are some academics who believe that there is collusion between powerful um, business groups who are aggregating and exporting vanilla. There could be organized crime involved. There could be corrupt politicians involved. But it's a little bit disappointing that we just don't know the full extent of the corruption that's happening because there haven't been prosecutions and there haven't been um, you know, great investigative reporting pieces that bring any of this to light. And I'm wondering if we can zoom out for a minute and if you can talk more generally about the overall disconnect between local level issues in rural areas and the federal government in Mexico. 
Yes, this is a very complex topic, and it, I think it this this stretches back over many decades. The the move from uh, authoritarian rule in Mexico to democracy, the version of democracy that we have now, was a very gradual process, um, and it it was slow and it was gradual. It led up to the pre-party who governed for um, seven decades, more than seven decades, losing the federal elections for the first time in the year 2000. But sadly, that change also opened the door for different types of corruption, new forms of corruption. So under the old system, the federal authorities were responsible for dealing with criminal groups, negotiating with them. And the pre could keep organised crime in check to a much greater degree than is the case now. So um, with a range of political parties, political options for voters, which are obviously a good thing, uh, criminal groups also have options. They have new options and they have easier access to, to state power and to resources. So what we're seeing now, and it seems to be getting worse, I fear. We're seeing criminal groups lobbying to influence um, municipal governments, uh, in particular across the country, but also state governments as well through violence or investing in their campaigns, or in some cases, they're just putting up candidates that represent their interests. And in response to this trend, this like corruption of of municipal and, and state governments, the federal governments tried to take back control over security issues. And this was most clear in 2006 when the former president, Felipe Calderon, sent the military out into the streets uh, on, the, on the basis that state and municipal governments had been corrupted and they needed to deploy the military. That was the argument. And the current president has kept that trend up. Uh, his AMLO has, President López Obrador has been pouring money into the military and the National Guard and weakening local and state police. And these these authorities aren't really focused on criminal investigations. They're not traditional law enforcement. Um, so it's, it's a totally blunt instrument, basically, that is very ineffective in the face of certain types of of criminality, because what what we're really talking about most of the time when we're talking about this kind of thing is criminal conspiracy. And the military basically has to catch criminals red-handed. So they they set up checkpoints, uh, but those are easily avoided. And um, it's a one-size-fits-all approach. And for somewhere like Veracruz, in this context, local concerns are, are more likely to be ignored because of this strange paradox uh, of first this corruption uh, of, of municipal authorities and also the response to it, which is, uh, has been a just uniform approach. Um, so in the case of Vanilla, they'll, they'll be at the, the end of a very long line uh, and very low on the list of priorities. So, uh, yeah. So you mentioned some of the issues with weak institutional capacity at the local level in Mexico and the current effort in Mexico to re-centralize some 
some government policy in terms of uh, the area of security. But I think it's also important to state that even at the federal level, uh, government capacity in Mexico is still quite weak. And I know that overall tax collection as a percentage of GDP in Mexico is around half the total collected in the U.S. or Canada. But government institutions in Mexico are even weaker than those tax collection figures would suggest. I know the World Economic Forum published a report where they categorized Mexico in the bottom decile of countries overall in terms of institutional strength, which you might find surprising. And in learning about the vanilla sector in Mexico, I really saw how the those institutional weaknesses play out every day in life in rural Mexico. And there's a great book by an academic named Andrew Matthews who studied forestry in Mexico. And he looked at the creation of official knowledge in Mexico. And recognizing the limits of state capacity in Mexico, he describes official documents and statistics as a kind of performance art or a public fiction by bureaucrats who pull together data from unreliable, inadequate, or inaccurate sources in rural Mexico. And given the institutional shortcomings in Mexico and the tenuous ties between local communities like the Totonaco, uh, the Totonaco villages that I visited in Veracruz, and the well-educated technocrats in Mexico City, I thought about Matthew's description of bureaucracies in Mexico being what he called sometimes farcical and blundering instruments of the state. And one of the most challenging aspects of my research on vanilla was finding reliable statistics for total production levels, export figures, or even the number of producers operating in Veracruz. And at one of the businesses I visited, I saw some crates that contained around $75,000 of vanilla just sitting there in the corner of uh, one of the buildings I visited. And that vanilla in those crates would be more than 10% of Mexico's official tally of vanilla exports. And it was just one relatively small business. So to me, that was clearly a sign that the official statistics on vanilla are too low. And overall, the dynamic on the ground in Veracruz seems to be defined by the absence of functional state institutions and a lot of uncertainty about the dynamics of power that play out behind the scenes. But overall, for me, it was a, it was a new topic, and I really had a, a great time meeting with vanilla growers and hearing their stories and learning about the issues affecting the sector. And I think that for listeners of the podcast, it might also be an opportunity for a, a scavenger hunt to try and find a product that includes Mexican vanilla from Popantla. But 
overall, I just wanted to say thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It was really great to hear your perspective. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure. I wanted to take a short break to remind listeners that the Modern Mexico podcast is sponsored by Bada Funky Coffee. Bada Funky Coffee is available at the Bada Funky Cafe in Mexico City and is also available to be purchased online and shipped to the U.S. and other countries. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Mexico podcast. If you like what you heard in the podcast today, check out my book, Searching for Modern Mexico, which is available on Amazon. The next episode of the podcast is coming soon. Until then, hasta luego, amigos.